Kachin, Elias Pedersen scores! Kachin scores! Matthew Kachin! What a goal! You're listening to... Another chance, great save by Markstrom! Here's Kachin, oh, what a save by Demko! Rintoul and Sermon. What's going on? How's your Wednesday? Little midweek edition coming your way. You know that means Tim McAuliffe. It also means me, Scott Rental, Jamie Dodd in for Karen Sermon this week. How are you today, sir? I'm doing great, Scotty. How are you doing? I'm doing very well. I'm doing very well because I had one of those days yesterday. I'll explain in a minute. Want you in on this conversation. 960, 960, 650, 650. You can get in at any time throughout the course of the show. And we're going to ask for your interaction once again today. In fact, we're going to demand it. Once again here today, but it's going to have to come early and often because we got a pretty loaded up guest list that, as mentioned, begins with Tim McCallum. I had one of those days yesterday, Jamie, and knowing your affinity for specific teams, I think you had one of those days yesterday as well. Being a sports fan, to me, is kind of like being a major league hitter. You learn to deal with disappointment or you do not survive. If you are a great major league hitter, if we want to take the simplest of stats, you are successful three of every ten times in the play. That means you deal with a lot of disappointment. Fair, Jamie? Yeah, that's fair to say. There's a lot of failure in baseball inherently baked in. Right, and that's if you're a really good major league hitter. I know average isn't the stat most people focus on now, but that's a very simplistic explanation. It doesn't mean you give up. It actually means you learn to enjoy the success a little more because you know how fleeting that can be. And even on those days when something happens to go right, chances are not everything goes right. Your favorite player has a huge game, and this is as a sports fan, of course, but your team loses. Or your favorite football team wins, but the hockey team you root for, it gets shut out by a divisional opponent. You get the idea. Rarely does it all line up. Every once in a while, though, every once in a while, you have one of those days as a sports fan. It's a day when everything seems to work out. And unless there are playoffs or a title of some kind involved, you take it for what it's worth. You take it for being a really good day. You savor that feeling, and you realize the sun's going to come up, and you got to do it all over again the next day. Yesterday for me, Jamie, was one of those days. Layla Fernandez, it was happening during our show at the tail end. She took the first set, then she dropped the second. Thrilling third set that looks like she was going to win, then all of a sudden Kerber comes roaring back. No. Oh, pardon me, Spitalino yesterday comes roaring back. Layla gets the job done, and she wins a thrilling quarterfinal at the U.S. Open. That was fantastic theater. Then the Blue Jays come out, and the heater continues. They blast the Yankees yesterday, which is a double shot of awesome because not only are the Jays winning, the Yankees are losing that game. I know you're a Jays fan, so we can agree on that. And, of course, the Red Sox lose, which makes the day even better because that's another one of the teams the Jays are trying to track down in the wild card race. And the night caps off with, unfortunately, a match for Felix Ojeas-Eliasim that isn't a match. His opponent retires due to injury, but the end goal is accomplished. Felix is through to the semifinal as well. I mean, if I really want to gloat here, if I really want to gloat, the M's and the A's, they both lost last night. That helps the Jays in the wild card race. I don't have anything against those two teams. They're behind the Jays right now. I'd be fine if one of those teams got in as long as the Jays got one of the wild card spots. So that feels like piling on a little. But it was a perfect day on the old bingo card, Jamie. One of those days where you say, okay, everything I wanted to happen, it happened yesterday. You're on a heater. 
Did you did you run out and buy some lottery tickets or maybe place a few wagers down or something? You got to bottle that energy, Scotty, and try to figure out how to sustain it there. That's a fantastic day as a sports fan. Right, but you're in the exact same spot because you are cheering for the Canadians at the U.S. Open and you're a Blue Jays fan as well. So you wanted all of those things to happen that I wanted to happen. And you're just ticking them off the old checklist as you go yep. down. You know what I'm talking about. It was perfect. It was a straight run. It was you literally could not have asked for anything more. Maybe for, you know, Felix for his match not to end with the opponent retiring in the middle of it. But still, the ultimate goal of him making it to the semifinal is accomplished. Right. So that's where we find ourselves today. And as you know, as a sports fan, a bunch of this can change today. Like the Blue Jays could finally have their six-game winning streak snapped, and it would be snapped by the Yankees, which is a double shot of suck. But that would happen today. And maybe the Red Sox find a way to beat Tampa Bay in their series finale. Maybe those things happen, and I have a much worse feeling in Canada doesn't get the result it needs tonight against El Salvador, which better be a win, by the way. We can talk about that as the show rolls on. That can change. But it did get me thinking about this because as a sports fan, that feeling is fleeting. And I want our listeners in on this. We've got some people tweeting about it already. We'll get to those in a second. Jamie, I'll ask you, and we can have this conversation. What's your best year as a sports fan? Overarching year, that period of time. And I'm talking ballpark of 12 months or so. Maybe it's nine months where everything hit with all of your teams. Or maybe there's an event you attended in there somehow. But as a sports fan, what's been approximately the best year of your life as a sports fan? So this is kind of a tricky question for me to answer, Scotty, because really in my life, I've only been like a hardcore, passionate fan of two teams. And that's the Vancouver Canucks, because I grew up in Vancouver, and the Toronto Blue Jays, because my parents were huge, are and are in the case of my mom, huge Blue Jays fans. So those are the two teams in my life that I've been very, very passionate fans of. Now, you know, like I... I'm an extremely casual Seahawks fan, so, you know, it's nice when they win the Super Bowl, but I'm not living or dying, living and dying with the Seahawks or anything, right? So that is very, very far down the rankings for me in terms – when I'm thinking of great moments in my my career as a sports fan. So, I mean, really, for me, it goes back to when I was a pretty young kid, and I would point to this stretch of events actually as something that made me a lifelong passionate sports fan, and – I go back to the Blue Jays winning back-to-back World Series in 1992 and 1993, and then the Canucks making it to the Stanley Cup Final in 1994, obviously not able to win it. They lose to the Rangers. But So if I had to answer, I would say the run from, okay, like October 1993 when the Blue Jays win their second World Series and then through the next year into 1994 when the Canucks unfortunately for me at the time, lose in the Stanley Cup final in 1994. That's the kind of, still to this day, the peak of my sports fandom. I just, there's never really been a time where two good things have happened to my teams in the same year since then. Well, and as I pointed out on Twitter, 960, 960, 650, 650, if you want to get in on this, what's been your best year approximately as a sports fan? The one that you cherish the most. And as I pointed out on Twitter, there's a lot of different ways to answer this, Jamie, because it might be a year where something good happens for your team, but you also attend a sporting event that holds a really special place in your heart. It might not even involve your team. You just might have witnessed something incredible and you happen to be there because some of the responses I got back were 2010 Winter Olympics, says Matola, who goes by at Canucks Republic on Twitter. From 2010 Winter Olympics, being at the final gold medal game to being at BC Lions Grey Cup game and being at Game 7 of the Stanley Cup Final, which didn't end the way I wanted, says Matola, but it was the absolute best year I ever experienced. Yes, I know it's longer than 12 months. And that's what I'm saying. 
we want it to be in and around 12 months, and that's pushing the envelope a little when you go from the 2010 Winter Olympics in February all the way to November of the next year and the BC Lions winning the Grey Cup at home in 2011, which is what he's referencing there. But I understand that. That's an era you cherish. And if you grew up somewhere other than, oh, I don't know, Boston, where this has just been like championship after championship, <laughs> and it's like, what do you mean best year? That's really hard to decide because we just have a whole bunch of championships to celebrate here. Like We're on these, a two-decade run. How do how can we choose just one year? Yeah. Yeah, these periods are really fleeting, and sometimes you got to pick and choose because not everything lines up. I'm a big Jays fan, as I just laid out off the top. The 1992 win... I don't know if it's more special. Like That's asking to choose between my two children which one I love more. I'm certainly not going to admit which on the air today here, Jamie. But, <laughs> you know, 92 World Series, it's the first time, and there's nothing quite like the first time. 93 lines up better with a couple of other events for me. I certainly wasn't a Canucks fan at the time, despite that being a thrilling run for the team in the city I now reside in. So I wasn't as personally invested in that. But the 1994 Grey Cup is one of the best events I've ever attended. It was fantastic, and that was Canada against the U.S., and that's a game-winning field goal by Louis Pasaglia, and fans storming down onto the field, not in a violent manner, but in a celebratory one. So I understand why people want to answer there, and sometimes those things, they don't quite line up. Like 92 with the Jays for me was so massive because they'd been there so many different times in the 80s, and not to the World Series, but close on the brink. And there was heartbreak along the way. And then when you finally get over, it feels so different. Back to back, that was just icing on the cake, cherry on top, whatever analogy you want to use in there. It's tough for everything to line up, though. It's really tough. And just on the kind of, as you're saying, oh, how do you choose between 92 and 93 if you're a Jays fan? You know, for me, I mean, I was 6 in 92, 7 in 93. So I just have much clearer memories. It sticks in my mind much, much more, more clearly. Uh, the 93 one, which is why it's easier for me to trend that way anyways. And then, yeah, if I'm looking for something good happening <laughs> on either side of it, I obviously go to the Canucks run uh, in 94. We've got some other, you know, similar answers coming in. This one's uh, in the 960-960 Calgary text message inbox says, easy answer for me, it was 92 and 93. I'm a Habs fan and a Jays fan. I was 12 in 1993 that's about as good as it gets to be 12 right in the prime of your sports fandom as a kid your team wins the stanley cup in the summer and then wins the world series in the fall as well it's hard to beat that one i'm interested to hear from that listener text back in i believe that was an unsigned text but text back in if you have another little follow-up there being a habs fan and a jays fan does that also count you as an expos fan were you like a lot of us in canada growing up saying well i cheer for the expos in the national league and i cheer for the jays in the american league and if so which was actually your favorite team and the tie-in here is larry walker goes into the hall of fame today one of the great expos a lot of his exploits obviously happened when he got to the colorado rockies but Larry Walker is associated with that last team that had a shot, 1994. And that'll play into the show a little bit later. I will bring that up a little later, not just as with regards to Larry Walker, but perhaps to this Toronto Blue Jays team as well. Here's some other ones coming in. Sudeep from Burnaby says, 1994 agrees with you, Jamie. Canucks make their run. The Lions win the Grey Cup. Italy loses the World Cup, and I'm glad you brought that up, Sadiq, because as you know, by virtue of a bet on this show that I won just a few months ago with Italy taking down England at the Euro final, I'm an Italian fan. So sometimes you have these great years where something bad also happens, and how much does that tarnish it, Jamie? 
Well, it tarnishes it a lot, potentially, right? I mean, certainly depending on how traumatic the experience is for you, I think it can be very, very tarnishing. And if it's one of your favorite teams, you know, I think it would be hard to place a year where they suffer a crushing disappointment. It would be hard to place that in in your, you know, best years ever as a sports fan. Ari Like Atari says, 2009, I met my wife, and 10 months later, my Yankees won the World Series. Last time that they were able to get over. Ari Like Atari, and I'm hoping it doesn't happen this time around. Yeah, you've enjoyed a lot of success, but there you go. You're tying in meeting your wife. Congratulations to the Yankees winning the World Series as well. Dan also adds on another one. 1993, his team wins the Stanley Cup. Blue Jays win the World Series. And Dan won his men's league hockey championship, Jay. There you go. That's what it's all about. That's what's really tipping it over the edge there in that year is the men's league hockey championship. I love it. Uh, Tyler texts in, as a Giants, Flames, a Giant Flames and Red Sox fan, the time around 2004 was pretty amazing for me. Yeah, that's not bad at all. Flames obviously don't get over, but the Red Sox stage just an incredible comeback against the Yankees to break the curse in 2004. Really the last time the Red Sox were likable in any way for a casual fan. But <laughs> that's interesting because, as we said, you know, being from Boston is kind of a cheat code. But in that case, Tyler, just a fan of one Boston team. It still gives them a bit of a leg up. This one comes in very short and to the point. 96, Bailey wins gold in Atlanta. That's it. Not signed, nothing else. That is the sporting moment. That's the best year for this, Lesnar, simply because of that. I don't know if that's not only because Canada was at the top as far as fastest man in the world, most prestigious event at the Olympics, and you grab gold in it, or if it had to also do, Jamie, with the redemptive nature of erasing the the stain that this country had with Ben Johnson, or at least felt with Ben yep. Johnson and everything that happened in 1980, 1988. Yeah, that's a big part of it, of course, with Donovan Bailey. But that's interesting. I mean, that's I, and that's you know just one singular moment, an incredible moment, right? But I mean, literally something that's you know ten seconds, and yet it is a strong enough memory and a positive enough memory to carry the whole year. In that case, that's really interesting. I hadn't I hadn't thought of that one when I was going kind of going through my list. Uh, Calvin Hector Texton in the Calgary inbox nine sixty nine sixty says. From March 2010 to February of 2011, the Calgary Hitmen won the WHL Championship and the Flames shut out Montreal outdoors at McMahon Stadium. That's another one where it's just, okay, one event, but whether you were at it or it was just such a big deal at the time, it sticks out enough to kind of elevate an entire year for you as a fan. Right, and if you're at that game, it changes things completely. We had somebody text in earlier, and maybe this is a troll job, 2011... Bruins from Vancouver. I went to Boston for game six. Amazing, says Brad. And obviously that is a crushing, soul-stomping loss in the Stanley Cup final game seven for the Canucks. But if you're a Bruins fan, it probably doesn't get a lot better than that. <laughs> great. What happened in 2011. <laughs> it's yeah. awesome. Those it's are not. really good times. And Brad said he made the trip. Went all the way there. Went to Boston for that game, which obviously takes the Bruins off the brink and forces that game seven back in Vancouver. You know, it's it's tough for me to a certain extent here, Jamie, because I'm asking our listeners, hey, what's your best year as a fan? And while I absolutely remain a fan of sports, there's this crossover because of what you and I now do for a living. Because when you're you're covering things in a professional capacity, it's a different experience. But it's still a great experience. Like I'm not taking anything away from that. I'll give you an example. 2004, I had a great year. I got to go cover 
the first of four Super Bowls. So even though I didn't have a rooting interest in the game, I went to a Super Bowl, which is a bucket list item for a lot of people. And as a as a sports fan, it's just incredible to be there, to be in the stadium, to witness the biggest game the NFL has to offer live and in person. I also, as a reporter, got sent to Calgary for game six at the end of that run and what was supposed to be a championship coronation for the Flames, and I don't need to get into the whole Marty Jelena, was it over the line debate here today, but the fact that I got to go cover that game, I wasn't actually in the arena, but I was reporting from the Red Mile that night, Jamie, which was pretty incredible. So That's pretty just, good. Yeah, just the experience of being down there and being on a building and have someone narrowly miss my head with a full can of beer that they decided to fire up <laughs> after, after not being too thrilled with the way things ended. But also that year in the CFL, you know, I'm a CFL guy. So that's the year that fans really returned in force to BC Place and got caught up with that team, quarterbacked by Dave Dickinson, which ultimately lost in the championship. Pardon me, Casey Printers that year. Dickinson was going to start the year. Printers took over. Dickinson finished the year. Don't need to get into that debate. But fans returned in force that year. It was an exciting team. There were over 50,000 people for the Western final at BC Place between the Lions and the Riders. It was just a cool environment to be in and then to go to Ottawa to cover the Grey Cup. Like, there's a lot of things that happened professionally that year that were a lot of fun, less so because of rooting interest. Just being at them was awesome. Well, and you're, uh, you know, you're sharing an answer there with a lot of our Calgary listeners. No surprise, right? Even though that run didn't end how they wanted it to, I think it still sticks out for a lot of them. We have one unsigned texter says, 20, 2004 Flames was the best sports year for me, even though it ended really badly. Brenton Calgary says the 2004 Red Mile run was a lot of fun. He also says, hey, the Roughnecks won the championship in that time frame as well. So, yeah, lots of votes for 2004 coming in to the Calgary 960-960 inbox. And you know what? I'm a little surprised of just how many. Maybe they're just coming out of the woodwork now because we're asking this kind of question. But of how many fans of various Boston teams we have listening to us, Scotty, because Bruce and Calgary texted in uh, 2011 when my Bruins and my Giants, that would be the New York football Giants, both held the title. I'm a lifelong fan of both of those teams. Well, you and I were discussing this topic last night, and we thought it had a little bit of juice. We thought our listeners would have some fun with it today, and I said, it'll be a lot of fun to hear the different answers unless someone from Boston gets in because there's so many years to choose from over the past two decades. Just so spoiled. And if Boston doesn't win again for another 50 years in any sport, that's just fine because we've seen enough of it. It'll feel fair if that's what, if that's how it goes down. I don't have any real hate. Like there's that sports hate that people have for certain teams and certain markets. I don't really have that. It's more of a, okay, you've been served enough time to go home. Let some other people have a drink. That's kind of where it's at. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I like this one. Comes in unsigned to 960-960. The 2002 Olympics in Salt Lake. Van full of buddies drove down with a few flats of Molson Canadian, caught some games, and partied. That sounds like a pretty good time. And you know what? I mean, I guess if I would have to choose a second answer for me, just being in Vancouver as a Canadian sports fan for the 2010 Olympics was an incredible time. And, you know, there's nothing really else going on for me as a sports fan in 2010 to kind of anchor that year. But just the experience in and of itself of being in the city for that stretch is pretty remarkable. So I hear where you're coming from there. Going to the Olympics, partying with your friends at the Olympics is an amazing experience. Rob in West Vancouver texts in, 2006 for me, says Rob. My son was born that year. Italy wins the World Cup, and BC wins the Grey Cup. Big fan of the beautiful game and of Canadian football, obviously. Rob was pretty happy 
with that year as well. We had this other one come in from Quinn who gets spoiled a little bit with fandom. Quinn says, I'm a Penguins fan, a Seahawks fan, and a Red Sox fan. So from 2013 to 2018, one of them won a championship every year except 2015. Thanks, Pete Carroll, says Quinn. <laughs> there you go. Keep those texts coming in. 2010-2011 is a good one as well. I think that's a really good year. And the Olympics, if you were part of the Olympics, like I've said this many, many times, that two-week, I guess it's 17 days overall, that 17-day run in Vancouver, I've never been a part of anything quite yeah. like that. Just yeah. as a sports fan and seeing the camaraderie from people all over the world just to be at the same type of event, how peacefully it was carried out, how successful the games were for Canada, it was sensational. It really was. I think anyone who was here and who was engaged in, in sports at the time at the Olympics remembers it the same way, too. I like this one, though. This is kind of a unique story about uh, those Olympics and the Golden Goal from Jeff and Comox. He says, I got married in Hawaii on the Golden Goal Day, watched the game after the ceremony, my tie in hand, and that was just one year after my Steelers won the Super Bowl in fine fashion over the Cardinals. I like that story a lot from Jeff, Jeff and Comox. Yeah, that's very good as well. Very good. This one comes in unsigned. This is easy thanks to Grandpa Tom. The Bucks winning the Super Bowl. Had to wait 18 to 19 years to see it again. We had a couple of Bucks fans who were texting us regularly during the run last year. And, hey, I thought that the Bucks were going to bow out. I thought they'd beat Washington. Wasn't so sure against the Saints, though. I, I thought, yeah, I don't know. I haven't been a big fan of New Orleans. I think they're... They're going to be done, but I had the Packers beating them in that NFC Championship game. I certainly didn't see the Bucs getting it done last year. No, it was, especially uh, people forget how much they kind of struggled and were hot and cold in the early part of that season in particular. They didn't necessarily look like a Super Bowl contender for long stretches of that year, but they figured it out, put it all together, and yeah, thanks to Uncle Tom. And I mean, all of a sudden, Tampa Bay is just spoiled for championships out of nowhere, right, with what the Lightning have done, and then Brady getting the Bucks. A Super Bowl, you know, I know the Tampa Bay Rays fell up short, but they're going to be a contender again this year. They're the, the new Boston all of a sudden. 0-1 Pat's Super Bowl win, says this texter. That's the first one. And the next year, Team Canada wins the 0-2 Olympic gold in hockey. Because we've had a couple hockey golds since, I think people forget how big that was yeah. in 2002. It had been 50 years since Canada won a gold medal. It was coming off the disappointment of 98 Nagano and not even winning a medal there. That was so, so big for this country. And it was on the heels of the women winning that incredible gold where they seemingly were killing off a penalty every second of the game. Yeah, that was a big moment, and that, I mean, that tournament just had so much drama as well, right, with Wayne Gretzky coming out and giving the speech, and, you know, they, they lost early to Sweden, and it was kind of a national emergency, right, as you said, coming on the heels of Nagano and not winning a medal there, and oh my goodness, are they going to do it again? There was so much anticipation and so much pressure on that team. You're right, it does get kind of thrown down the memory bank a little bit right now because we have won the two gold medals after it, but it was huge at the time. Keep those texts coming in. We will get to more of them throughout the course of the show, and we will find out what's been the best year as a sports fan for Tim McAuliffe. He joins us next, as he does every Wednesday. It's Midweek McAuliffe right here on Rintoul and Sermon with Jamie Dodd. You're listening to Rintoul and Sermon. We were laying out a little bit of this yesterday, how the momentum of this sports week just rolls on. There's no real pause. Canada's going to play El Salvador tonight, Jamie. The Jays are going to try to continue their heater and we already had someone text in who's not a big blue jays fan that's fine 
We've talked a little bit about the Mariners as well, but the Blue Jays are one of those talked-about teams in baseball right now. Part of it is because they're doing it against the New York Yankees and how competitive that division is. So we'll, we will talk about that heater because I will say that whether you're a fan of the Mariners, A's, Red Sox, Yankees, or Jays like Jamie and I happen to be, there might be nothing better when your team's on a heater in baseball. And I say that, Jamie, because the games are every single day. Right. Every other sport, you got to wait a little. you got to wait a little. And football, in the case of football, you got to wait a week in, in most cases. But with baseball, if your team's winning – there might be nothing better. If your team's losing, there might be nothing worse. <laughs> yeah, it can be extremely, extremely frustrating when you just roll out there every day to get thumped again. But that's not what hap- what's not what's happening for the Jays right now. They are on a, an amazing heater. And, yeah, the fact that they're doing it right now for the last couple of games against the Yankees in particular makes it all the sweeter. But even, you know, sweeping the A's over the weekend. That was a huge deal just to get them to, to leap over the A's, get them really back in the wild card race. So they're beating legit teams and if they can win another one of these last two games against the Yankees, man, all of a sudden they've made it a real race down the stretch. Well, and they've actually helped some of the other teams behind them, Jamie, because yep. if it's the A's or Mariners that you're talking about, the Jays by doing this to the Yankees right now, and I know the Yankees did a little stubborn. They're 2 and they're 8 in their past 10, so it hasn't been all Toronto, but they're helping those teams. We thought the Yankees were home and cooled as far as a playoff spot goes. And all of a sudden, nope, both the Yankees and the Red Sox are catchable for any of these teams. Yeah, it's, you know, even the A's who are, you know, behind the Jays, behind the Mariners, they're only three and a half games out of a playoff spot, right? And, I mean, they've lost four in a row. But because the Yankees and the Red Sox are losing, they haven't really lost much ground overall. So it's really bunched things up in the American League wildcard race. All of a sudden, like, all of those teams you feel have at least a little bit of a shot of making it. So it's not just the baseball tonight. It's Canada versus El Salvador, and then there's going to be a break with this CONCACAF qualifying until October. Three points on the table. Canada needs to go get those three points. No Alfonso Davies for this match, which is by far for me, Jamie, the lesser of any of the fears I have about this because we saw with Canada at the Gold Cup, and I think we've seen as we've learned about the strength of this roster, it should be good enough to get the job done tonight without Alfonso Davies. Obviously, the task is made a little easier if you have him or maybe a lot easier, but they should still be talented enough and on home soil good enough to get out there and get three points. My bigger fears are, number one, that this injury is worse than anticipated. Knock on wood. Let's just hope for starters that's not the case. If we can move past that, and certainly that should be the main fear, the next one is this, that Bayern Munich says, I don't know, man. I don't know if we can let you go back in October or in November to this. We got a lot invested in you. You're a young phenom that we have and we expect to have for a long time. That is actually my back burner bigger fear about this. It's fair. I do hope that if it's not serious, that they don't go down that road, right? If it is just a little bit of knock and he just needs a few days to get right, that they don't consider that. But yeah, my biggest fear is that it's a long-term injury, right? And what that would potentially do. I mean, first of all, for Alfonso Davies' career again, because he's already had to deal with one injury recently, but specifically also for Canada's qualifying chances. Because, yeah, they can get it done against El Salvador tonight, but in some of those really tough fixtures they have coming up in the schedule, they're going to need Alfonso Davies. Yeah, I'm with you. Number one fear is an actual injury that's going to linger for a while. It's going to be something serious to deal with because that rules out the possibility of him playing for our country, and it questions, you know, certainly the the now part of the career that is unfolding before him. 
But it would almost be more frustrating if he were healthy and not able to come back and play. Yes. Yeah. yeah, that's a fair point. That would be extremely, extremely frustrating. Yeah, that would absolutely suck. I don't know if Uncle Timmy's going to the game tonight, but it happens to be in Toronto. The host of Tim and Friends joins us here as he does every Wednesday. How are you on this fine September day, sir? Oh, I am. Uh, I am actually frustrated about tonight's game because I purchased my tickets, and because I'm 45, and our uh, entire fantasy football league has kids mm. and mm. things to do, we couldn't settle on a date, and we're actually doing it tonight. Oh. So I've had to send my son with another family to tonight's Canada-El Salvador game. Wow. You chose fantasy football over Canada-El Salvador. That is an interesting decision, to. sir. I had to. There was no – I was part of the group that had it changed. There was controversy. Uh, there was arguments. Uh, there were some that wanted to do it on Labor Day. And unfortunately, every year on Labor Day, I have to tell my fantasy – football uh cohorts that we i work on labor day all right there are some people who actually have to work on labor day i am one of those people every year and so we switched it to wednesday and then i realized later oh my god i got tickets to canada El Salvador. would you trade getting rolled in fantasy football this season for three points in a victory tonight <laughs> for team canada probably probably <laughs> okay. Uh, I would give up the bragging rights and what is a pretty pricey pool uh, for Canada getting three points in what feels like an absolute must win for Canada. It certainly does. And we can get into that throughout the course of this. There's a lot to talk. It's been a fantastic run of sports here and yeah. it's not slowing down this week. What's the story of the week to you? Is it Canada at the U.S. Open? Is it Canadian soccer? Is it the Jays being on the heater? Maybe that's difficult because of the market you operate in. It's funny because my opening is uh, Layla for my today, for the show today is, is Layla and Felix followed immediately by how wonderful sports is. I I received so many tweets telling me that the Jay season was over and to be two games back with 25 left. It almost like, and I'm not trying to dunk on anybody because you react the way you react and most people thought it was over, but that's why sports is so awesome. Like Kevin Garnett screamed anything is possible. What, like a decade ago now. And yet every year, every week, there's another example of people giving up on stuff. And I love the Jay story right now, simply because most people lined up to give up on this team, except for the team. And those are the great stories that I love in sports. Well, Tim, I didn't tweet at you about it, but definitely emotionally as a Jays fan, I had written the season off at a certain point. But I'm back. I am back on the bandwagon in a big way. So they've won six in a row. They've been on a little bit of a heater before that as well. I think they're 9-1 in their last 10. Was there one moment for you in this stretch, one game or one inning, that really made you think, okay, you know what? They have a legit shot at this. No, no, not at all. <laughs> I don't think, like, I feel like last night there was just this, like everything that possibly could have gone right for the Jays went right. They got to Garrett Cole. Uh, Garrett Cole leaves the game with an apparent injury. Um, the Bo Sox lose again after an unbelievable loss. That they, like everything that had to go right over the last couple of days has basically gone right for the Jays to be in this spot where they're 
two games back of the Red Sox with 25 to play, two and a half back of the Yankees. Like, it's just, it's, I don't know if I actually believed it until last night after the West Coast games were done. You're just looking and you're going, wait, the A's lost two. The Mariners lost two. Like, there is a, a real bleeping chance at this. And that's kind of why I like it. I feel like, you know, and I'm, I'm discounting all these other stories that are great. Um, and I'm, I'm not trying to. Like, I think they're all wonderful. And I think uh, Canadian sports is on a heater. And Canadian women kicking ass and chewing bubble gum and being all out of bubble gum is an unbelievable story, too. Yeah, it, there's so many great stories uh, to choose from right now as we've been talking about. It's really an incredible stretch. I mean, normally this is the dead time of the calendar, right? Well, we're waiting for the yeah. NFL to get going, for NHL training camps to get going. But it has not been that way at all. And, I mean, also I got to say, you know, as a Jays fan, how much fun is it to watch Alejandro Kirk doing what he's doing right now and hitting dingers again? Yeah. I, I cannot get enough of that guy. Yeah, I thought for a moment there that he was – and that was one of the more disappointing losses of the year. I don't know if you remember the pass ball in a 1-1 game with uh, Robbie Ray yep. on the round, who I keep calling Ricky Ray on national TV uh, because I have the CFL pass and it won't escape me. But Robbie Ray's pass ball when he went down in the crouch, you know, with the leg out instead of the natural catcher's stance and it cost the Jays a game and everyone was pissed off and the bullpen sucks. And it was just one of those moments where, uh, all those tweets roll in where it's over, and I felt bad for Kirk um, because he was he was wasn't hitting the way you know he kind of came up hitting. His defense wasn't fantastic. It felt like he was dealing with you know the kids' mistakes that you deal with, especially with a catcher at this level, um, and especially with a catcher who's played what like eighty minor league games in his life. It was just all those things stacked up. I thought may have swallowed up the kid and instead he's responded and let's be honest the jays have responded um and alejandro kirk um they aren't here without him especially with the george springer injury and the need for a dh uh he's going to play a huge factor in this run so uh it's nice to see i, I love the stories of, of teams and kids responding under pressure and kirk did that Tim McAuliffe joins us here every Wednesday. He does so again today, the host of Tim and Friends. So of the topics we've touched on so far, Canada at the U.S. Open, Canada versus El Salvador, and CONCACAF qualifying, and the Toronto Blue Jays, which of those entities should get over and which you're just, hey, let's be hopeful they get over? Um, I mean, it's a tough matchup for both Layla and uh felix so i'm gonna yep. say that if if either of them made the final uh that would be like the semifinals is a hell of an accomplishment the finals would be a wonderful accomplishment and the rest is icing like i, I think even a final would be icing on both of their cakes as they continue to take the next steps in their career um i think canada qualifying for a world cup is icing for this team, but pretty damn close to being expected. Um, or at least top four pretty damn close. to. Now, with Alfonso Davies out tonight, I think that changes. I think they need three points. Um, they did they did do well and play well without Alfonso Davies in the Gold Cup. And in fact, it wasn't just Alfonso Davies out. So 
you know, I think maybe if you're saying, if you're asking for Canada um, three points tonight, I think they need to get over. And I think the Jays are in a spot where they can get over, especially with Boston. I mean, this is going to, they're in the midst of six straight against division leaders, four more to go. And then they get Seattle after that. So with all the, the, the players on COVID, it'll lighten up. They get six more against Baltimore uh, through the Red Sox. So it'll lighten up. But I feel like the Jays are in a spot where um, they really could get over and maybe be, and maybe really should get over. I've drawn the comparison for Canada soccer being without Alfonso Davies tonight to Team Canada being without Jamal Murray in the qualifying tournament in Victoria. I still feel like that yeah. basketball team should have qualified for the Olympics, and it is an extreme disappointment that they did not. I feel like even without Alfonso Davies tonight, Canada should be able to get three points against El Salvador. Is that a fair comparison? Yeah, I think so, and I think that if you put the teams on paper um, – Canada would be, in fact, they are favored in Vegas by a significant amount uh, going into tonight's game. So, uh, yes, Canada should be able to get over. Uh, it's just a matter of confidence without Alfonso Davies. And I don't know uh, what they drew from uh, the Gold Cup, but I have to assume, and for those who don't remember, uh, 4-1 Martinique, 4-1 uh, over Haiti. They lose one nothing to the States without Alfonso Davies. Uh, the state scored like 10 seconds into the game and then Canada dominated the rest of the game. And then they lost uh, un-Canadian like in the 99th minute to a two, one goal from Mexico in the gold cup semifinal. So not only were they competitive, but they were right there with the best in CONCACAF without Alfonso Davies and without Jonathan David. And they'll have Jonathan David tonight. So, I mean, on paper, I feel like this Canada team should get over. It's just a matter of, can they have others step up immediately when it was obvious that Alfonso Davies was able to turn the game uh, with one or two runs um, and they won't have that luxury tonight? No, they will not. And hopefully some of that experience playing Honduras last week gives them a little bit better idea of what to expect tonight against El Salvador, despite it being a different side. Listen, yesterday was one of those days for me where everything on your sports checklist just seems to go right. We talked about what happened at the U.S. Open. We talked about the baseball and all the results came in perfectly. And that feeling is so fleeting as a sports fan. Sometimes you get a year like that where your teams do well or you get to go to events where something special happens. You've been a sports fan a long time, man. What is the best 12 months or so period in your life as a sports fan? Oh, doctor. Um... That is an unbelievable question because I've lived the tortured life. I'll just say um, growing up in Toronto and having Jays go back to back when I was in um, grade 10 and 11, I believe it was, um, is pretty damn good for any sports fan to be able to um, the first time in my life kind of have the freedom where you can go out at night and things like that. Um, and then have celebrations like 2 million people uh, in the downtown core of your city, not tearing it apart, but absolutely partying uh, like it was 1999, but it was only 1993. Um, I think that would probably be it. Like just, and to be honest with you, like I, I, I'm not, I'm not a huge, I was never a huge Jays fan. Like I always just love sports, but to be able to celebrate that in your, 
in your hometown city and to feel it from across the way, um, that would have to be it uh, for me for uh, like, you know, if you're talking 12 months, uh, back to back for the Jays ain't half bad. Yeah, it's a pretty good answer. Back to back for your hometown team, as you say, at that time in your life, Tim. Yeah, my answer, I mean, I grew up in Vancouver, but I was a huge Jays fan growing up. So 93 would figure in there for me as well. I did want to zero in a little bit more on uh, Layla Annie Fernandez and what she's doing at the U.S. Yeah. Open because she's turning heads, you know, not just here in Canada, but I mean, Magic Johnson is tweeting about her last night, right? So she's getting a yeah. ton of attention for what she's doing at Flushing Meadows. What have you enjoyed most about watching her run at the U.S. Open this year? You know, in, in reading a little bit about her, um, obviously she has to have a level of work ethic to be uh, that good at that age without um, kind of, you know, the uh, big serve or the, you know, six-foot frame that can get from side to side. Like, there's a work ethic there. But one of the things that I kept reading about was, um, her dad, who was a professional soccer player, um, had this idea that she had to make sure that she enjoyed life, period. And I think you can see that on the court. Like, I think you can see that even after coughing up a 5-2 lead and serving for the match at 5-3 against a world-class player coming off of Olympic bronze, um, she still had you know, the, the wherewithal to kind of find it again. And just her, her I, I don't want to say joie de vivre because that's such a cheesy phrase, but like the, the joy with which she plays, uh, there's something contagious about that. And I think that's why you're seeing uh, the crowds and, and you know, uh, Magic Johnson, or we had Brevin Knight on the show, former NBA player, Stanford dude. Uh, he was tweeting about her. Like, I think she has a certain joy of the game that is contagious and that people love to see. And uh, if you read a little bit about her, it's something her dad really pushed with her. It was like, if you want chocolate, go eat chocolate. If you want to sit and watch movies for a whole night, let's do that. Like there was, we'll work hard, uh, but you still got to be a kid. You still have to make this fun. And in these tough moments on center court, against like Naomi Osaka or Angelique Kerber or Fidelina, I've seen that joy. And that's, uh, that's definitely something you don't see all the time. And to see it in a just turned 19 year old, I think it's awesome. Well, and I think it's, it's the joy that you're talking about combined with, she also has incredible tenacity and fight. Right. Yeah. And, and you put those yeah, two things ass, together yeah. And, you know, she's not exactly in a a physically imposing (laughs) opponent for those people, right? I mean, you know, she's still so young. You get the sense she's still going to put on muscle and all that. It's just, it's quite the package. It's really easy to get behind her and root for her. Yeah, without a doubt. And and size, too. And, you know, she had uh, studied all of the smaller players in the game because she knew that she wasn't going to be this six-foot or, you know, 5'11 dominating player. And so she studied Justine Ennen, and she studied, um, you know, Chris Everett, who uh, around 5'6", five, 5'5", five, five, and Layla sprouted. She's 5'6", now. Um, you know, when she was studying, she was 5'4". But, yeah, without a doubt, there's definitely not only just an underdog with the world ranking, but you look out there and you see this young girl um, with, without the physically imposing characteristics, 
and you think, oh, this is going to be done quick, and then she just keeps fighting, and without a doubt, like you might as well be chanting Rocky out on that uh, on that Arthur Ashe court because uh, the underdog is definitely playing a factor. And when you see the underdog uh, hit the shots that she's hitting, soak up the moment, it feels like you can't help but jump on that bandwagon either. They might be chanting Rockies in Cooperstown today. Larry Walker goes yes, in. We'll sir. be chanting. We'll be chanting Expos, of course. And Tim. Obviously, this is a day to celebrate Larry Walker's greatness. I know Derek Jeter will get most of the headlines south of the border. Yep. But this is also, as we started with where we're at in like tennis and basketball and soccer, this is also for guys like you and me an opportunity to look back and say, look how much things have changed. Because Larry Walker comes from that era yep. where we went, that's our guy. Like, that's our Canadian who plays in the majors that's really good. And he's the one, and that's it. We don't have this wide scope of people to talk about. Larry Walker's our dude, and look how good he is. Yeah, it's funny to look back. I mean, I remember Terry Poole being our guy. Like, it mm. was just like an average Houston Astro. Like, oh, hey, there's our guy. It's Terry Poole. And then Larry Walker came around, and it was like, it's not only our guy, but he's good. Oh, no, no. He's really Oh, no, he plays on a Canadian team, and he is an MVP. Like, it gave belief, and I'm, I'm firmly in the court of, like, if you can see it, you can be it. And there is, without a doubt, a, a lineage, and I'm sure if you talk to Justin Morneau and Joey Votto, seeing Larry Walker play at that level made others believe that they could do it. Uh, I think it's true in women's sports. I think it's true in the periphery sports in this country outside of hockey uh, there's this new era of Canadian sport, and Larry Walker was at the forefront of it. And he kind of paved this road, especially for, for BC boys, um, where you get a little bit more of a baseball season. Uh, you can do this. And I think you've seen that pipeline from BC um, to the to the pros, and I don't think there's any coincidence that Larry, Larry Walker is from Maple Ridge. I think that's a, a big part of why – uh, a lot of Canadians felt like they could do it. And let's be honest, Scotty, in his prime, like five tools, people saying he might have been the greatest base runner of his generation, like just all the little things. He was such a joy to watch. And I know that there are those who will just look at the numbers and say, well, I'm not really sure. But in his prime, there was no way you didn't watch him and go, man, this is one of the best baseball players of this generation. Doubt he calls out Jacques Villeneuve in a car today in his speech, but I digress. Where are you drafting today? What is your, what is your, what is your draft slot today? Uh, you know, what's funny is so we do a draw and then you get to pick your spot Ooh. in the draft. So and? we drew 12th, which okay. is last. We're yeah. a 12 team league. So we just get slotted wherever anyone else leaves open. And I got a feeling that's like nine or 10 because people will take the snake, the double pick at the end. I don't know if you would, uh, but we just got pooched. Yep, you did. I'm sorry to hear yeah. that, buddy. <laughs> you might have to employ one of those radical strategies that nobody sees coming. That is, uh, I am the king of employing one of those radical strategies that no one sees coming. So my, I have, uh, I don't have <laughs> enough time to run my own fantasy pool. I have a partner, Dexter David, who has been, a homie since uh, since grade uh, junior kindergarten, since we were three. Uh, so we are partners in this crime. Uh, he's renovating his house right now. 
I'm too busy, so we're going to go way off the board and just mess everyone else up. Well, when you say Dexter and you mentioned killing, I think you guys are putting guys in body bags as I <laughs> allude to that TV show. Timmy, good stuff, man. Always a pleasure. Good luck in your draft tonight. Go Canada, go. I hope your son has a great time at the game. Uh, appreciate it all, and we'll talk to you again next Wednesday again. That is Tim McAuliffe joins us here. And as is tradition, JB, we go a little bit long because we always run out of yeah, time with Tim pretty McAuliffe. Much, you can pretty much book that every Wednesday with McAuliffe. There are a bunch of people who are probably in that same boat. Maybe we can get to that a little bit later in the show. My drafts are all done. I am a dynasty fantasy player. I'm in three different dynasty leagues. So my drafts have been done home and cooled for quite some time. It's more about roster management, trying to get trades done before the season. Maybe waiver wiver pickups already, but we can get to that because there's a bunch of people listening out there that are in the same boat. Lots to get to. The responses keep coming fast and furious. We'll filter some of those in and ask you another important question as a sports fan that I know. I guarantee you have an answer to this and you feel passionately one way or the other. That's coming up next on Rintoul and Sermon with Jamie Dodd. Now back to Rintoul and Sermon. That right there sounds like a little bit of new rock. In fact, it is. And if New Rock's your jam, stay plugged in with the New Rock playlist at Apple Music. It's always being updated with the best new bands, New Rock, and you can add tracks right to your library for offline listening. Listen to the New Rock playlist on Apple Music. It's not definitive, Jamie, but there are reports out there, thanks to an alert listener who obviously knows a lot more German than I do. <laughs> Toby Altschaffel has reported that the Alfonso Davies injury is not terribly serious. Great news. Fantastic yeah. news. I'm hoping that's the case. By the way, the I got a... Sorry, sorry, go ahead. Oh, I'm just hoping that's the case. That was our number oh, one fear, yeah, that I... this is a serious injury. My low-key fear is that Bayern Munich says, yeah, we're not going to chance this, so you're staying home for a while. It sounds positive. We'll we'll wait and see. You never know with these things, but very good to have those early reports. I did just want to mention, you know, you said the re the listener has knows more German than you. I, I mm. got a, a solid C in introductory German in my first year of university, but I have forgotten all of it. I was not a a natural German student. <laughs> not nothing at all. You know, you know, no, Danke and Bitte, absolutely and that's nothing. about it. I, I pretty it. much forgot it, like, as I was walking out of the final exam. I was like, all right, just delete that from my mind. Don't need to know it anymore. I'm done. I'll never speak another word of German. There was a point in a different part of my lifetime where I knew a few words from a whole bunch of different languages because I was a bellman. And as you know, ah, Vancouver has yeah. been an international city for quite some time, more so because of the 2010 games. But prior to that, if tour groups would show up from around the world, if you gave just a few words out of their language and tried to show, hey, I see you, I'm trying to make you feel comfortable, it usually increased the tip. That usually helped me when I was delivering bags. That's advanced level Bellman technique right there, Scotty. I'm, I'm impressed. Now I learned from some of the greats. I learned from some of the greats. <laughs> You don't have to text us in German because we won't be able to read it, but you can text us throughout the course of the show, 960-960 or 650-650. We asked you earlier, and we'll continue to filter this in throughout the course of the day, what's the best 12 months or so of your sporting life as a fan? Like, what did you enjoy the most? Tell us, we've had fans from all across a bunch of different teams and sports. Had this one come in from Arthur who said the Riders winning the 2013 Grey Cup and the Seahawks winning the Super Bowl, both within six months preceding my 50th birthday. That was an early birthday present. They don't come much better than that. 
says Arthur, and not only did those riders win in 2013, Jamie, they won at home, which always helps. Yeah. Yes, that is, that's a big deal. And especially if you get to go see the game, that can make a big difference as well. This one comes in from Pat from Calgary. He says, 2018, I'm a longtime Eagles fan. I got to see the first game in the divisional playoff in Philly. Then, of course, the Eagles win the Super Bowl. And he's also a big uh, French soccer fan, and they won their second World Cup that year. So he says, great year. That's from Pat from Calgary. How about this one from Dave in New West? Sorry, I can't stop chuckling at this one as you read from one of our inboxes. Dave from New West says this, 2011. I didn't want to miss the potential Stanley Cup run by the Canucks, so I did not go to Mexico with my then-girlfriend and her family <laughs> during the first round. They got pretty sick while there. I say that is worse the best, best sports year ever all on its own. I can't imagine missing that series, especially Game 7. So he avoided a bad case of the runs down in Mexico. And hey, look, the Canucks, the Canucks didn't didn't get over. They didn't finish the job in the Stanley Cup final, but at least I didn't get sick down in Mexico. I love that. That's fantastic. Someone else texted in mine is between the Rough Riders winning in 2007. So we got a Rough Riders shout for 2013. This one for 2007 because that was the first time in a long time. First time since 89 that the Riders had gotten over. Riders winning in 2007 or says this texter the 1996 Summer Games, not only because of Donovan Bailey's gold medal, but also because I got to watch my mom compete in judo at the Olympics. Well, that's got to push it over the top, with all due respect to the riders. Yeah, that's an incredible story right there. I mean, getting to watch a parent compete in the Olympics, that is, I mean, that's just such a special moment. So few people get to experience that. You're right. All due respect to the rough riders, but come on. Let's go with 1996 there. Yeah, we had someone else text in. Mike Chernoff sent this one in. He goes by Mr. Mike Chernoff on Twitter. 2017, and he showed pictures of his son, one of his sons playing lacrosse for the Langley Thunder, the twin brothers winning provincial golds in soccer and lacrosse. So his sports fandom is more about watching his children than it is with pro teams that he might happen to follow. Yeah, and I can understand that, right? If you're if you're lucky enough to be in a position where you have children who are competing at a high level, I think that would stick out for sure for you. You know, we've had a lot of people reference the 2010 Olympic Games here in Vancouver. This one comes in, though. It says, 1988, I'm an Oilers fan. They won the Cup that year, and I also got to go to the Winter Olympics in Calgary. It was the greatest. Are you an Oilers? I know you're not an Oilers fan. Are you an Oilers hater, Jamie? No, not really. I mean, no more than, you know, any other, like, divisional rival, right? I mean, I was – I wasn't – conscious as a sports fan when they were winning all their cups in the 80s right so I never I've never known the Oilers as this dominant bully in the in the NHL so I've never really had a chance to develop that hate for them so there is every once in a while a tweet from the Edmonton Oilers Twitter account where they reference the past and the glory years city of champions that sort of thing so today and I don't know how you feel about the Carolina Hurricanes so you'll either love this or you'll hate this even more Today, Edmonton tweets out, favorite Oilers moment you've witnessed live, go. The Carolina Hurricanes account quote tweeted it with a wink because we all know which one that is for the Carolina Hurricanes. It's beating them in game seven, of course, in the 2006 Stanley Cup final. Yeah, and... I, uh, I I don't know. I, I don't want to say I hate the Carolina Hurricanes Twitter account. That's going too far. I'm a little bit over it. It's like, okay, yeah, it's you're, you guys are cute. It's, it's funny, whatever. I will say it's not as cutting a response to the Oilers because at least the Oilers have the history of 
winning Stanley Cups, right? And yeah, it's a long time ago, and what Carolina is referencing is more recent, but at least they have that history. If this was the Canucks putting it out there, what's your favorite moment you've ever witnessed as the Canucks, and it was the Bruins doing this, that would cut a lot, a lot deeper. Yeah, it most certainly would. You're right about that. I happen to be a fan of the Carolina Hurricanes Twitter account. It's probably because I don't operate myself that way on social media. So <laughs> I, I think that I think what they do is fun. I really do. I yeah. think it's fun. I think they take social media the way you're supposed to. They're never actually mean about things. They have fun with it. Sometimes they poke fun at themselves. Usually they're poking fun at other teams. And I think when they do it the way they do it, they challenge others to do the same. Yeah, I don't have a big problem with it. I'm not like, oh, you know, they're they're disrespecting the game. They're disrespecting other teams. No, nothing like that. It's just it's sometimes I feel like, okay, we get it. You know what I mean? <laughs> we get it, guys. Okay, so there's a tie-in here, and I'm really glad you brought it up. Like, if the Canucks had tweeted something like that out, what the Bruins would have done or what Bruins fans would have done, it would have been a horrible day for the Canucks and their fans <laughs> on Twitter had they decided to go down that road. Which brings up this, because that is a heartbreaking anger-rendering, gut-punch loss that Canucks fans will probably never get over, but they'll at least need a Stanley Cup win if it ever comes to get over it. The Leafs, did you see the trailer that the, the that came out today about the Leafs? Oh, I did. I absolutely did. So as many of you probably know, the Toronto Maple Leafs did one of those behind-the-scenes documentaries, All or Nothing, and it's set to drop on October 1st. They did it last season. I love that type of thing. You and I can agree, and we're going to talk more about it this hour. Mike Rupp is going to join us. He's a part of that Netflix series right now on the Danbury Trashers, which is on because he went and played for them for a few games during the lockout year. I love that style. I think you love that style, too. Yeah, absolutely. It's I mean, and it's becoming so much more common and so much more prominent, right? Everyone is trying to get in on this. Everyone is trying to find out different ways to promote their sport, and this is one of the new extremely popular ways to do it. So the Leafs behind-the-scenes documentary called All or Nothing, and yes, the jokes have been made. It wasn't all, so yeah. what does it have to be? <laughs> that drops on October 1st. I'm interested to see it. The trailer's out right now, but we all know how it ends. If you are a Leafs fan, if you're a Canucks fan, a Flames fan, name your team. Jamie, when your team suffers that kind of a loss, and there have been a bunch for the Leafs, I don't know how they rank it in terms of heartbreak in the playoffs, but up 3-1 on Montreal, which looks somewhat decimated and out of it completely. We all know how that ends. Do you relive it? Do you go back? Do you watch the big game that your team lost? Do you pour over the series and look for places where it could have gone right? Do you relive it just to enjoy some of the happiness that came along the way? Because for Leafs fans during the regular season last year, things were pretty good. And Austin Matthews had a great year. And the first few games of that series, things were going pretty well despite what happened to John Tavares. Jamie, do you relive heartbreaking losses at all? No. I am absolutely not one of the people that will go back and torture myself by reliving those brutal, brutal losses. For me, it's done. It happened. I never want to revisit again. I want to avoid thinking about it again if I can. But the idea of sitting down and watching one of those just absolutely gutting losses again no, no interest for me whatsoever. This gets made a lot about for athletes. When they lose a game like that, hey, have you watched it since? Have you ever seen the footage of? And some of them say no, and the others say, yeah, you know what? I watched it once, and that was enough for me. 
and we're good because I have to go on with my life. It's different when it comes to being a fan. I will admit to being on the other side of this, Jamie. I will admit to being on the other side of, yeah, I go back and I rewatch it and I watch some of the details and it is agonizing in the moment. I can't tell you how many times I watched 49ers second and goal from the five-yard line against the Ravens in the Super Bowl, Colin Kaepernick audibling out of what was supposed to be a run. He audibles to a quarterback counter, and guess what? It was there, Jamie, and he either scores at worst. I've watched it so many times, I can tell you at worst, he gets stopped at the one-yard line, and they're third and goal from the one. But because the time clock was bleeding, Jim Harbaugh ran down the sidelines. He had to call timeout because they would have taken a delay of game penalty most likely. Because of the noise at the time, Kaepernick and, and the offense didn't hear it, so the play starts to play out, and then they eventually understand that the whistle's going. And it, Man, I've watched that play so many times, and I am one of those people who will go back and watch. Now, do you feel that it's a positive experience for you that to to go back and have that experience, or is it just is it something you're compelled to do, even though it makes you more depressed about it? You know what I mean? I think it's both. I think part of me feels compelled to go back and watch it. It's a little bit cathartic to say, you know what, they could have won this game. And part of me then enjoys the fact that even in the last Super Bowl, which Jimmy G and company couldn't get done, like that's. That's a game where they played so well for so long. And, man, I've yep. watched third and 15 a lot of times. And, well, everybody pins it on Jimmy G in that game. I know where it started. I know that it started third and 15 for the Chiefs, which has been made into legend. Chip Wasp and Tyreek Hill going to the corner. And it's all because <laughs> Emmanuel Mosley comes out of cover three. Like he comes out of cover three, their base defense, a place he played all year long. <laughs> I know that's where it starts, I, man, but I've seen that play a whole bunch of times. I think it helps me deal with it personally. I can I can picture the morning after that Super Bowl back when we were still working in studio, and I can picture hearing the exact same rant from you in the prep room at the 650 Studios about that play. And I, yeah, I, I get it. I get it. I do think it's funny. You know, our colleague at the station, Vic Nazar, who is a massive Seahawks fan, like biggest Seahawks fan I've ever met. He is, for some reason, obsessed with bringing up and reliving the Malcolm Butler interception that cost the Seahawks a Super Bowl, their second Super Bowl. I've never understood that. He has this, this masochistic need to think about it, to talk about it, to bring it up, to post it on social media. I don't get it whatsoever, but maybe for some people, it's cathartic, I guess. I don't know. It's just not for me. I never want to think about it again. You can hit us up, 960-960 or 650-650. Do you go back? Do you watch gut punch losses? Even though you know how it ends, do you rewatch it yet at all? Max and New West, quickly. As a Major League fan, I'll watch this for the series. It will no doubt be tough at times. We're living yet another brutal playoff letdown, but I need to watch it because I'm hoping to watch that the organization's able to help and give me some faith for next season. We all know they lost, but I want to see why I think they lost or they think they lost and what they're going to do about it next season. More of your answers on that coming up in the show. Let's get to what they're saying. A lot going on these days with regards to vaccination and regulations in certain states, certain provinces, and certainly on this side of the border when it comes to the National Hockey League. We've seen what all of the teams have done, Jamie. You're going to need to prove that you're double-vaxxed to get in. There's going to be masks in some cases. We don't know what capacity looks like across our country as we get ready for the NHL season next month. Bill Daly was talking about this today, and one of the concerns has been 
whether or not unvaccinated players would be able to come to this country to play. Have a listen to what he said. If the reported numbers are to be believed, this isn't going to be a big deal for most teams, Jamie, because as you mentioned earlier this week, or perhaps it was last week, the numbers that we've heard about, they're pretty high with regards to compliance yep. on vaccination across the National Hockey League. Well, and I think this is a big reason why, right? I mean, that you just think of that scenario that Bill Daly's talking about, about not being eligible to cross the border and play. That's the most punitive condition for not being vaccinated that we've seen across sports, right? Like just straight up being ineligible for a certain chunk of your team's games. And, you know, it's going to be different for every team. But think about if you're an American team in the Pacific or Atlantic division, right? You have three Canadian division rivals that you're going to be going up and playing on a regular basis to say nothing of the teams outside of your division that you're going to have to visit and play, right? So that is if you are ineligible for those games, that's a big chunk of your team's schedule. That's a huge, huge incentive to get vaccinated. And again, I think that's part of the reason why all reports indicate that the number of the percentage of players in the NHL who've chosen to do that is very high already. Yep, it is very high. You're absolutely right about that. And we saw some reports in the last few months. There was an unnamed player quoted, I believe, in Emily Kaplan's piece, though I may be wrong on the author. Could be an incorrect reference. But I think it was an Emily Kaplan's piece where there was an unnamed player who said, I'm not really excited to get vaccinated. If it wasn't this part of my profession, I probably wouldn't do it. I still want to be a distraction to my team. I don't want it to yeah. be a thing, so I'm just going to go. Yeah, and again, that you know, talk about a distraction. Every time the team has to get on a plane to Canada, it would be a major distraction to say nothing of taking yourself out of the lineup. No question about it. You're absolutely right about that. Moving on, Tennis Canada, big week. It's been a big couple of years quite frankly and it's all bubbling to the top right now some pretty interesting stats out there i think since 2014 canada is the only country to have six different semi-finalists at grand slam events with at least three of them on either side is that correct jamie is that the stat i know it's a little convoluted yeah that's the stat i've seen going around so uh, so three men have made it to a grand slam semi-final and three women have made it to a grand slam semi-final they're the only team to have done or only team excuse me only country to have done that in that time frame bianca's the only one to get over in a final during that time but there are a couple of shots left they're up against it in felix and leilani fernandez they've got the number two seeds on their respective tours that they got to play in their respective events but we've still got a shot on each side. Michael Downey is the president and CEO of Tennis Canada. He was on Sportsnet Radio earlier today, and everybody's asking the same question, and this dates back a couple of years. What's Tennis Canada been doing to continue to churn out what are amounting to potential stars on the tours? Well, it's really a collaboration, uh, you know, and we're part of it. But at that young an age, you know, if you're talking a six, seven, eight year old, we're really relying on the private sector and working with our provincial partners um, because, you know, those kids would be in some kind of a program. They might be in an academy. And I think our role at that early age is is basically just to assist uh, because, again, you're going to be working locally in that regard. It's really when they get a little older, when they're kind of in that 12-plus range, that we probably get more active in that regard. But I will say, you know, one of the things that I think is important here, and we've seen it with so many of these great tennis players, both within Canada and outside of Canada, at that early an age, 
like six, seven, eight, you actually want these kids playing multiple sports. They're better to be developed into a great athlete at that age, and then they specialize when they're a little older. Um, that's kind of the rule of thumb right now is, is create an athlete early or help create an athlete early and then help them specialize in tennis when they're, you know, 12, 13, 14 years of age. Preach. Preach. I am for yeah. diversification of sport. I am for not specializing early. You know, we talked about that yesterday. Larry Walker's going into the Hall of Fame at Cooperstown today. He didn't choose baseball until well into his teenage years. Yeah, it, it's it's something you hear over and over again, right, about players who, you know, either didn't even take, take up their sport until later or at the very least, yeah, they were focusing on one thing, but they played a bunch of other things outside of it as well. And it actually helped them get even better at their main sport. And, I mean, certainly the idea of specializing before, you know, 12 or 13, it's like, come on, you don't need to. As, as he says in that clip, just just develop a good athlete, someone who's just a really good athlete, then see how, how you want to specialize them. There's a great documentary out right now on Netflix. It's about the Danbury Trashers and the most prominent player they ever had on their team from NHL circles, Mike Rupp. He joins us here next. I guarantee he's gotten a lot of calls from ex-teammates. I want to know if he got a call from a specific ex-teammate about something else that he said recently. Find out what right here on Rinto and Sermon with Jamie Dodd. I was more prepared for it last night, and then it didn't actually happen than I was for it the night before because of the way the schedule rolled out. It's Scott Rintoul, Jamie Dodd alongside me. Jamie, last night I was prepared for it to be a lengthy viewing opportunity sports-wise because we know it takes three sets to win a men's match and a Grand Slam event. Felix was the last match on the docket yesterday, and I knew what happened the night before with Bianca and how yeah. late I was staying up beyond my anticipation. So I was prepared to settle in, and then that never actually came to fruition last night. No, it was unfortunately. I mean, fortunately because Felix is through, but unfortunately because you don't want to see it happen like that. Didn't take all that long before, you know, his opponent had to retire, and he, he gets the win. So here's the good news for me as a viewer. And, yes, I wanted him to go through. I would have preferred to have seen a tennis match and not seeing an athlete retire because of injury. But if that's what it takes for Felix to move on, then that's what it takes. Hopefully his opponent is okay, and he gets back on tour ASAP. The good news is I got to finish the Danbury Trashers documentary. And I started it last week, but I started it at a pretty advanced hour late in the week. And you know how sleep goes with this gig yep. and, and, and being a parent of young children, Jamie. I couldn't get the doc finished last week, and it was on my list to do this weekend. But then sports exploded over the weekend, and I had so much other stuff to watch. I never got to it, but I got to finish the doc last night. How about you? Yeah, I, I watched the whole thing in one go last night. Had it on uh, while I was taking care of some business in one of my fantasy drafts. And, yeah, I, I mean, we're going to get into it with our next guest here in a few minutes, but I very much enjoyed it. Yeah, we're not going to try to spoil the whole thing for you. Mike Rupp's part in it is not a massive one, but obviously he's a pretty prominent role because of his name and because you know him from the NHL, and he's the NHL player that came back and played for the Danbury Trashers. For those who haven't watched it out there, Jamie, if anybody's sitting there on the fence going, well, should I watch this? Should I invest an hour and a half in it? Your response is somebody who's watched it. Oh, yeah. If you're a hockey fan and if you like sports documentaries, definitely give it a watch. There is a lot in there that's very, very entertaining. It's compelling. It absolutely is, whether you like the style they employed, the way they went about any of it, but it's an incredible story, and it's a story that I'm glad they told. There's something else that stuck out to me, though, Jamie, because I was working in sports media at the time, and yeah. I was covering a lot of stuff. There was an, almost an embarrassment factor 
how did I not know about this? Like, how did I not know about the Danbury Trashers and everything that was going on prior to this happening? And so I started to think, okay, what was I doing back then? Well, it was the NHL lockout, and it just shows me how much more we are focused on, well, is the NHL going to get back up and running? How much energy we poured into the Western Hockey League in this part of the country? And even the AHL and those NHL players that were playing in the AHL that were those prospect or first or second year players that had the ability to go and do that we were covering hockey pretty extensively it just didn't extend to the uhl for me at that point no i mean we, we were all uh we were all getting into poker at the time right <laughs> and, and during the uh the first nhl lockout but you're right i mean i was you know i would have been just finishing high school going off to university not on my radar at all i don't know if i'd ever heard of the uhl in fact until i started started hearing about this documentary well, I wonder where our next guest fits in that conversation, whether he'd ever thought about it, watched it, where it was on his radar. He ended up playing for the Danbury Trashers. He's part of the documentary. His former NHLer and current analyst on the NHL Network, Mike Rupp, who joins us here today. Mike, thank you very much for doing this. How are you? I'm good, guys. Thanks for having me on. And, uh, yeah, we're talking this this documentary. It's crazy, right? <laughs> I was uh, at the edge of my seat, and I was, I was part of it. So uh, I... I can only imagine what some of uh, the other viewers out there are thinking about it. When did you get your first cell phone, Mike? What year would it have been? Uh, cell phone? Yeah. Um, let me say 2000, maybe? 2001? Maybe around okay. that time? Yeah, right around the same time as me. So you know as well as I do that texting wasn't as big back then it is as it is right now. You scored the cup-clinching winning goal in 2003. I'm wondering if your phone your phone was blowing up more during that time or right now after the release of this Danbury Trashers doc. <laughs> well, for that, uh, yeah, that, uh, the technology now, it's been blowing up man, more now. That's for sure. I mean, it's crazy, and I... I mentioned it in the documentary there, and I, I find it kind of funny because I, I bounced around, played for six teams in my NHL career, but for the most part for the now Metropolitan Division in the NHL, I, I mean, I was drafted by the Islanders. I played for the Devils, played for the Penguins. I mean, I've kind of made my way around that area, right, that Metro New York area, and, um, you know, I'm still in there a, a ton now with the NHL Network. So it's been an area that uh, – I know you, you think to yourself, you know, if, if I get noticed here, it's going to be for playing one of those teams, right? Playing for the Rangers at MSG or, or playing for the Devils with the great teams that we had there. And I still get, Rob, I remember you with the Danbury Trashers. And I'm like, what? I get it all the time. <laughs> yeah, you played, and that was before this week. So, uh, you know, with the release of this, I mean, my phone's blowing up right now. And uh, it's funny, a lot of NHL players looking for Trashers jerseys right now. Yeah, I imagine they are. There's a lot of people looking for them, not just the the folks from Section 201, people that you're a little bit familiar with more so than the rest of us. Mike Rupp, former NHLer and former Danbury Trashers forward, joining us here today. So you said it a little bit earlier. You were on the edge of your seat, and you lived a part of this watching this documentary. So what stood out to you as you watched this Netflix special? You know, it's it's. Um, I think the big thing is, Excuse me. Is, is from talking to even AJ Galante post uh, this this documentary documentary being released, um, and just kind of um, talking to the producers. There was so much 
I think this is the longest of the untold series for Netflix. It's the longest individual you know, episode. And they were told that they had to cut it down a half an hour from where it was. So I think they had to cut a lot. I know uh, some of the other stories, and I, I'm not, it's for another day probably to get through all these. You're going to have to take a long time. But there are so many stories that weren't even in this documentary. It's just how some of these brawls and stuff were happening, how we were pulling over in a truck stop and picking up a guy that no one knew who he was. And he used to play pro hockey three years prior, and he's coming to play a game with us. <laughs> and then uh, it's just <laughs> random stuff where that guy gets suspended, and hey, it's just he couldn't write it. It's modern-day slap shot back in 2004. But I think the thing in watching it and the Galantes, I'll tell you what, they created a, a great atmosphere I played in the NHL. They treated us like gold, and uh, it just treated you like NHL players. You got the right foods put in you after the game. Uh, the locker room was like an NHL-quality locker room. I mean, everything that Danbury, the Danbury Trashers did was top-notch. But I, I think that from watching it, it just brought me back a little bit, thinking, man, how tight our room was. Because it did. I mean, when it's that, we always use that cliche in sports, right? When it's uh, us against the world mentality. <laughs> they were really good at creating that. They made it where we were so different than everybody else that if you weren't one of us, you hated us. And uh, at the, those are some of the, the greatest, I guess, bonding times that I, you know, we had a bunch of, I had some opportunities to experience that in the NHL, but this was, this was really unique. So, Mike, you know, I don't want to spoil the entire thing for some of our listeners who haven't had a chance to check it out yet because they absolutely should. It's it's incredibly entertaining and a really great story. But just, I mean, at this point in your career, you know, you're already an established NHL player, and this is a, a league, the UHL, and a team, the Danbury Trashers, that you know, not on a lot of people's radar, not on a lot of not on a lot of hockey fans' radars. Just just take us through how you ended up going down to play some games with them. Yeah, so it's uh, it's kind of crazy. Uh, in the hockey world, if you guys remember the twins, uh, Peter and Chris Ferraro, um, I was I was close with them, and um, they knew my situation with the lockout, and I just had uh, my second child and, and my son. He had some, some breathing issues where I, I didn't feel comfortable going and playing in Europe once the season was canceled. Um, so I was kind of sitting there waiting around thinking, well, I, I can't play in the American Hockey League because – I, I, you felt like you're going against the players' association. So I'm sitting there looking around, and they knew about this, and they called me and said, "Hey, there's this guy and his family in, uh, in Danbury, Connecticut, that's trying to get some NHL talent to come and and play, and uh, and uh, he's willing to do anything to to win a championship." So he's like, "You want to talk to him?" Yeah, I'll talk to him. And um, you know, once I went in there, I, I remember AJ Galante picked me up at the at the airport. So the 17 year old general manager picked me up at the airport and they started showing me around and it was it was a really unique situation for me because um because i i didn't stay in danbury i got to practice with the ohl erie otters uh back home and they're like you just got to play 10 games to qualify for a playoff roster so i basically played every other weekend and the galante family would fly me in give me the give me a, a, a car to drive and kind of wine and dine me and the rest of the team the whole time. It was a blast. So when was the moment that, you know, you, you join up with this team? What, what, when did you first realize that, okay, you know what, this isn't your standard run of the mill minor league hockey team. There's something more going on here. Yeah, I started, you know, at first uh, I observed the game and the, and the, and the, 
brand of hockey at that time for the UHO was really good because all the leagues were a notch better. You had a trickle-down effect with the NHL, so the American League was the best American League. It's been a long time. They had some guys who would probably be in the NHL playing there, and then you can go on and on down to the East Coast League and then the United Hockey League. Um, you know, I, I, I find that, uh, you know, during – you just – when you, you get in there and you start seeing from the day to day, yeah, it was physical. It was like slap shot. But we've all seen fights. I played junior hockey. But it started getting a little different when you just started seeing the way, uh, you know, it, it was like this community loved the Galantes. And Jimmy Galante did so much. He has, a, I believe, a children's wing at the at the hospital. And it became something different. It was something special. And you heard in the documentary, like, they're scalping tickets. For a United Hockey League game, they, they, Mr. Galante, put, I believe he told me a, a million dollars into ex, expanding. A, it was a youth hockey rink, and he had to put more seats in. He's looking to put more in and more and just keep growing this thing because they needed it. So I, I think when I was there and I saw, like, all that going on, and then there was just when you talk to him, he's very open. He's, he's uh, as honest as they come as far as uh, we'll tell you what he's thinking and and Jimmy had that kind of thing that you see in movies. No one's going to mess with us. You know, we stand up for each other. I mean, it's all those things that you, you're taught in hockey, but it's coming across a little bit of a different way. And it was a really strange uh, time, but it's a time, man. It was There was a lot of cool moments as well. Mike Rupp, former NHLer, former forward with the Danbury Trashers and current analyst with the NHL Network. He joins us today on Rinto and Sermon with Jamie Dodd. There were some violent dudes on your team, Brad Wingfield being one of them. He happens to be one of the protagonists in the hockey portion of the story and certainly the pugilist portion of the story as well. Was there ever a time during your play with that team that you were scared out there because of the way things were going? Um, no, not really. Not really. I, I don't think that it was, um, you know, again, just I didn't play every game, so some of the some of the times I, I – I wasn't a part of the games that had the brawls. I, I think it was like inside the room. It was funny because we had actually, and it, it's well documented that it was a tough team, but it was actually a really good team too. A lot of really good players over the courses of their professional careers. And we had, so we had a nice balance inside the room. Like it's like you almost were split down the middle where you had guys that just wanted to go out there and fight. And that's what they were there for. I mean, we had about eight heavyweights when other teams have one or two. <laughs> And so there was always this appetite for those guys. But then there's also, we got to a point where we, we would talk it out in a room and know when it, we got to calm it down and get things going. So it never really seemed like it got out of control from that standpoint. But if you're on the other team, you'd probably beg to differ. Um, I, I find that it was, it, was almost, it was almost funny because I would play against players in the Ontario Hockey League or in the minors, some tough guys who took liberties, who played hard who would, you know, try to bully my teams that I was on. And now all of a sudden you're playing them in this atmosphere where in warm-ups he's stretching at the red line and he's the only guy on the team that is, is considered a heavyweight and we've got eight. You know what I mean? Now all of a sudden that same player that used to be an absolute maniac was a lot more quiet. So, I mean, as far as, uh, you know, we always felt super safe, but as far as the safety involved with the game – uh, it started just getting to a point where referees are just tossing guys for the slightest of things because they were just trying to get things under control. But, no, I never felt like it was really going to get out of control completely. 
I know you're a big fan of where the NHL is at right now. You'd never come on here and, and say, hey, let's let's play that style of hockey. I am wondering about A.J. Galante because, as you mentioned, he did a really good job promoting that team. And, yes, it was a different style of hockey, but there's something there with what he created, the way that the community interacted with the team. And I'm wondering, Mike, is there something from a marketing or promotion perspective that teams around the NHL could look at and say, you know what? We could use a little more of that with our organization. Yeah, and I, I, I agree with what you just said on the on, on the top of that. Is uh, this, this the game has never been more talented? Uh, it's never been in a, a better place financially. Uh, I, I, I like where the game is at, and that was just something. So when we watch these things, and uh, when we're looking back to the old times, I, I just think there's a fine line there. You don't have to love it, but it happens. And, it, and they're crazy stories, and when you get into it and you start talking about these things, it's nuts to think that that was something, especially in this case, in 2004. I mean, would we be surprised if we heard these things in 1970? No, because that, that happened. That's what hockey was known for to some degree. So, um, you know, I, I think now where the game's at, it's a really good place. But as far as there, I'm just a firm believer that having certain elements to your team will not completely rid you of your problems and players getting targeted. No, it's not going to, it's never going to, it never has. But at the same time, there's got to be a little bit of accountability between peers. And if there's not now, all of a sudden the there's, there's this, there's this whole nother wave of players. that's going to be acting a little more brave to go in. And we talk about always wanting to put the, uh, the, the superstars on the pedestal. Well, if you if that if that was eliminated from the game, if fighting was eliminated, I'd be scared where it would go because now all of a sudden everyone can do what they want. There's no accountability. Um, that's where it gets sticky for me, and and so I, I think it, there is a place for it. I think we've seen teams in the last couple of years really adapt to that, and we've seen teams completely grab a hold of it to a point where they're removing front office and teams this year in the New York Rangers all because of that Tom Wilson incident. So. Uh, there's a place for it in the game. It certainly has shrunk, but teams and winning teams have a certain element, and it's knowing that you got each other's back. Hey, Mike, just one more on the uh, on your time with Dan Barry before we move on. You know, I mean, there's so many moments in the documentary that stand out. As someone who didn't know anything about this story, that I really couldn't believe. When you look back on your time playing with the Trashers and the entire experience, is there one moment or story that really stands out to you as something that you still kind of shake your head at and say, "Man, I can't believe that really happened." Yeah, so uh, it was a game that I, I, the game where the actual action went down. I was it was a weekend that I was not playing, but the prior weekend, uh, I was on. There was three and they were, we were playing a three and three across Michigan. So let's say we were going from Muskegon across to Flint or whatever. Uh, I don't remember that. Or if we're going to Motor City or whatever it was, and so we had three games, three nights. And I remember after one of the games, the prior week, uh, Barry Melrose and Steve Levy uh, owned the Adirondack team. And they made a comment in the newspaper that, you know, we've got uh, Tony Soprano running this team in Danbury. It was kind of, you know, it was Barry being Barry. And I love Barry. Barry's just poking fun at it, kind of. And like, yeah, I don't know what's going there. It's kind of, you know, a mockery. And Jimmy Galante didn't like that. And he was very vocal about it. and said he would tell us all the time, we are, I'm, he will know you can't talk about us like that. And so, you know, I knew he was ticked about it. So there was a date circled on our team's calendar the next time we, we play Adirondack. 
And again, it happened to fall on a weekend that I wasn't there. But the prior weekend, we're driving across Michigan. I'm leaning back in my seat, going to, trying to close my eyes. And it's after the first game. And I remember John Morasti, who's nasty Morasti, the toughest guy, one of the toughest guys in professional hockey, I think, ever, to be honest with you. But anyways, he's on his phone, and he's got his head in his hand, speaking into his hand. He's, he's speaking up by the window, and it's right where my ear is, if you could picture me sitting in front of him. And I hear him just like, he's basically recruiting somebody from a Western team. And this ends up being this Chad Wagner. And this Chad Wagner, I'm hearing this conversation, we just want you to come in and play a game. And then he's like, I don't, no one cares if you're in shape. I know you haven't played hockey in five years. It doesn't matter. Just come in here. It's going to be a good time. So he, we end up, I'm like, leave for the week to go back to Erie to practice. And I say, hey, guys, I don't know what's going on this weekend, but you guys let me know. Give me a call. Give me a text, whatever. My phone's blowing up that weekend. This Chad Wagner played, I think, a game or shift. He had like 89 penalty minutes on the shift. He got, he got to attack the other team's coach got thrown out, banned from another league now, and I was sitting there like, oh, my gosh, I heard this thing from the get-go on the bus, and it, uh, that was just one of the crazy stories. Mike, I got to ask you, because the overall tone of this documentary is reliving it and reliving the fun times, and as you said during this interview, hey, we got treated really well, and I got a ton of time for what they did for us. The other part that comes through is, Hey, we'll talk about this as long as Jimmy is okay talking about this, right? <laughs> yeah, so a, a few years back, I was playing for the Minnesota Wild, and the PR department of the Wild got contacted, I think from ESPN Magazine, was going to do an article. And this is when Jimmy was, was – and, you know, again, they, I saw crazy hockey stuff. You know what I mean? And we were around, and Jimmy treated me like I was part of his family. And it's actually been really cool in this process to reconnect with them and, and just kind of reminisce over some of the craziness, right? And uh, But, you know, it, the magazine reaches out, and my question was, well, who's participating in this article? Um, and uh, I asked if the Galantes were. And I wasn't really getting a straight answer on that, so I found out they weren't. So I'm like, nope, I'm good. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> you know, what I mean, like that's the thing. I joke about it now, and I joke around. I could joke around about it with AJ's. Like, hey, I've seen enough movies, man. I I'm not talking unless I'm told I can talk. So that's what I'm gonna do. And you know, when once Netflix picked this up, and I got a call, I didn't believe it at first, but I reached reached out to the Galante and said, "What do you guys think?" I'm like, I think this story. You know, I mean, they there is already well on its way, but I agree, this story needs to be told. And if you you know you guys participate, and they said, "Yeah, we're all in." Like, just let's be. Let's let's uh, tell everybody how nuts those couple years were, and uh, that's when I decided that I'd, I'd go in front of a camera. <laughs> Smart man. Smart man, Mike. You did it the right <laughs> way. You did it the right way. I actually wanted to get in some hockey stuff about the the league right now and, and a comment you made about Andre Vasilevsky, but we will save that for another time. Hopefully you will come back and join us, Mike, because we enjoy the work you do on NHL Network as well. Thank you very much for your time here today. Hey, thanks, guys. Anytime, and uh, have a great day. You as well. That is Mike Rupp, former NHL forward, obviously with the NHL Network right now, and he's part of this Danbury Trashers doc. I got that sense, and he confirmed it there at the end, that, look, they love their time there. There are a lot of stories to be told. And even Mike said 
There are probably some stories I can't tell you today that maybe at a future date I can <laughs> tell you. But I want to have the green light from Jimmy Galante and the Galante family that we're going to do this before I open my mouth here. Yeah, because there's definitely, even in the documentary, right, there's, you know, the revelation that all of the players had kind of shadow no-show jobs at uh, at Jimmy Galante's trash trash company, right? And they were all getting paid under the table for those jobs. So, yeah, I mean, he treated them like family. There was some sketchy stuff going on uh, around there as well. I did just want to follow up. You know, Mike told the story about one of the other players on the team recruiting some extra muscle for a big game, uh, right? He said it was Chad, Chad Wagner. So he was right. Mike got the story pretty close. Wagner hadn't played for three seasons going into that one, right? His last year had been in the UHL in 2001-2002. Gets recruited, I guess, to Danbury. Plays three games, 75 penalty minutes in three games with the Danbury Trashers. Unreal. Well, I ended up in this rabbit hole last night about the league itself, and there are some other NHLers who played in the league. Now, they didn't play on that team, and they happened to be most of them in the other division, and there wasn't a crossover between East and West with the UHL, but I got down this rabbit hole just looking up stats, and oh man, like Ryan Johnson played in this league, and Jim Montgomery was a player coach on one of the teams, and some, some, of, some of this stuff, and one of the protagonists I mentioned during that interview was Brad Wingfield. Now, yep. Brad Wingfield was the most notable tough guy on the team, and, and there are, again, I don't want to take people through the whole documentary. I think you should watch it yourself. It's it's great. It's called Crime and Penalties Untold. It's part of the Untold series where Malice and the Palace came from as well. Brad Wingfield's from Gibsons, B.C. He's a Western guy. He played for the Kelowna Spartans. But if you look at Brad Wingfield's hockey DB, oh, have man. you seen some of the penalty minute totals? He played in that league it for a is... while. He played in that league yeah. for a while. Like Before he got to Danbury... He had a year with the Elmira Jackals in 49 <laughs> games. He had 472 penalty minutes. In 63 games in 0203, he had 576 <laughs> PIMS, Jamie. It almost doesn't seem real. Yeah. yeah. His his hockey DB page, this is uh, Brad Wingfield, again, as you mentioned, out of Gibson's. Played in the BCJHL at the time, now the BCHL. It is incredible. Like 576 penalty minutes. The funny thing about that, too, is you look at that season specifically, which was right before he joined up with the Danbury Trashers. I mean, he had 29 goals in 63 games. Like, he was contributing offensively as well, and then just dropping the gloves literally at any opportunity, basically. Oh, and he is still not forgiven the guy who broke his leg. Nope. nope. To this day. No chance, even though they sort of settled it on the ice. To this day, he is not forgiven. Go watch it. It's fantastic. It's called Crime and Penalties. Lots of you chiming in. We'll get to your texts as we can. we got to load it up, third hour of the program as well. It kicks off the way that the National Football League will kick off tomorrow with some football talk. Bob Glauber joins us next on Rintoul and Sermon with Jamie Dodd.